Hey, and welcome to episode 10 of the MTG Collection Builder podcast. I'm Brian, the lead and only developer of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, and in this podcast, as always, we're going to be covering news relevant to Magic Collectors, including new products and bannings, along with the card of the week and the topic of the week, which this week is Ravnica City of Guilds, the set that probably saved Magic. If you haven't heard of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, it's a website where you can track your collection and how much it's worth for free. You get cool little progress bars to show your progress as you're filling up a set. You see your collection value, which is updated once a day, nightly, coming from TCG Player. All sorts of cool other little features, and I've been working on a new version of the website. And thanks to my patrons, I've been able to do that quite nicely, especially being able to upgrade my server infrastructure, including most recently my image database and pricing service. I'm hard at work on the new front end now, and it's going really well. If you wanted to support the site or the show directly, uh, feel free to go to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder. There are all sorts of tiers you can join. If you're at the $2 tier, you get ads removed for your account, which is pretty cool. So feel free to check that out at patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder. But no matter what, the site's always going to be free for everyone, and I promise I'll never lock a feature of the site behind a paywall or anything like that. I don't believe in that. And with that out of the way, let's move on to the news. So we have quite a bit of news to catch up on, so we'll start with a bunch of bannings that happened recently. First, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, was banned in Standard on September 28th. The price dipped at first, but it's recovered and the card is back up to $30 and $48, probably because it still sees play in Historic, Modern, Commander, and Legacy. Next, on October 12th, the ban hammer came down big time, and no one was surprised that Omnath, Locus of Creation, was banned in Standard and Brawl, and was suspended in Historic. And this is because 72% of the top decks in the 2020 Grand Finals were running this card. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Lucky Clover and Escape to the Wilds were also banned in Standard, and Omnath's price tanked from a peak of $35 down to about $13, so great time to buy him now if you want. And in Historic, Teferi, Time Raveler, and Wilderness Reclamation were both banned. Teferi had already dropped to $10 from $20 after other banning, so it didn't have a significant impact on his price, and Burning Tree Emissary was also unsuspended from Historic. And that's it for the bannings. Moving on to our next news item, The Walking Dead Secret Lair was fully unveiled. It was announced to be on sale from October 4th to October 12th at a price tag of $49.99, and it includes five foil cards, including a full art Daryl, Hunter of Walkers, Glenn, the Voice of Calm, Michonne, Ruthless Survivor, Negan, the Cold-Blooded, and Rick, Steadfast Leader, along with five different foil walker tokens, also known as zombies, and a foil treasure token. Additionally, it also included an MTGO redemption code, uh, single use, and it gets you one copy of each of the cards on MTGO. But there is a plot twist. Right on the heels of the buy box promo, policy changing to no longer include functionally unique printings. These cards are functionally unique, which sent the Magic community to an absolute uproar. In fact, Reiko is playable in a Legacy Vintage or Commander deck, and he's pretty strong, so it's not like these are throwaway cards. Um, honestly, it's, it's kind of confusing. It seemed like Wizards was aware of the problem with buy box promos. So on the one hand, they were doing the correct thing there, but on the other hand, the Walking Dead Secret Lair is repeating the same mistakes of Nodlathne Dragon from back in the day. So reading between the lines, I feel like they signed some contracts with some folks and there's going to be more of these coming down the line and there's not much they can do about it. And sure enough, after the backlash, they kind of released a video doubling down on the policy. And uh, in case you're not aware, um, if you print functionally unique cards but make them hard to get, if they become staples of a format, their prices go through the roof, players have a hard time acquiring them, and it's just a negative experience overall. Additionally, some of the characters from the Walking Dead franchise, including Negan the Cold-Blooded, are pretty problematic characters that are not even morally gray, like the actual murderers and rapists, things like that. So for a game targeted to children sometimes, it's a little questionable. Of course, with Secret Lair, you only have to buy it if you want it, right? You don't have to purchase any of these products. 
So if you, if you if it's not right for you, don't buy it. I certainly didn't purchase this, but I'm just worried about the direction that Wizards is going in with products like this. But if you like the Walking Dead franchise, yeah, by all means buy it. I, I definitely wouldn't charge anyone negatively for it. Seems like it would have been easy to avoid this issue if they had given the cards the Godzilla card treatment, where they're really alternate art and alternate name versions of other cards that see massive printing in a set. That way they're not so exclusive and hard to get, which is really the heart of the issue. Although some folks would also just prefer a traditional fantasy theme. They don't want to play with TV characters that are, are from real life. With that said, though, they probably intentionally did not do that. Um, whoever they're partnered with probably values the exclusivity to drive sales, and, and that's sad. But if the product's right for you, feel free to purchase it. Hopefully we don't see too many more of these, or they take corrective action when they can. And on a related note, the in-store play suspension has been extended to January. No surprise, as COVID-19 continues to do its thing around the world. And honestly, January probably isn't long enough. Um, my prediction with my crystal ball is that the suspension is going to extend until June, at least for North America. I can't speak for the rest of the world. And it's sad, but it's, it's necessary, right? I was looking forward to both GP Vegas and GP Anaheim this year, which is my neighborhood, but it's for the best. Hopefully they'll repeat those GPs next year once everything is, is fixed with the vaccine and all that good stuff. Last item on the news is that Secret Layer Extra Life went on sale. This is a $60 Secret Layer with $30 going to charity, benefiting the Extra Life Seattle Children's Hospital. And it features card art with children or families depicted, including Teferi's Protection, Amulet of Vigor, Collected Company, and Consecrated Sphinx. And this went on sale from November 6th to November 9th. Ultra Pro is also selling playmats with the same art uh, from the cards at the same time. Uh, they went for $21.99 with $16 going to Extra Life, so... You can imagine all the comments on Facebook and YouTube are just ripping into wizards about how they're not donating enough money compared to Ultra Pro. So kind of goes to my sign off about people being supposed to be contrary and kind of nasty in comments, right? But I, I kind of get the sentiment too, sure. And if, um, if you're bothered by anything wizards has done recently, like their handling of The Walking Dead, you're always welcome to just donate Extra Life directly. You don't have to buy this product. This product is a pretty good value though. Even non-foil, um, it's like $80 worth of cards for $60, but you're getting foil versions of them, so it's it's a great buy for a great cause. So if that interested you, hopefully you bought it already. And it's not really a news item, but I wanted to follow up on the draft constructed format I mentioned during my last podcast. It actually already exists. Uh, even though I, my wife and I invented this independently, there's a format called Primordial. Uh, she can check out at primordialformat.com, which is basically a better version of draft constructed. Basically, you build a constructed draft deck, so it's as if you drafted a good deck sitting in a good seat during a draft, um, but they restrict it a little more. Uh, you get two rares or mythics, six uncommons, with at most two of any uncommon, and then any number of commons you want, up to 4x of a particular common, and you only get an A-card sideboard, which is a little more realistic in terms of what you'd actually get during a draft. And it has a, a burgeoning Discord community of about 300 folks. Um, I definitely recommend you check it out. Uh, they host little tournaments and get-togethers and... Now that Magic Arena lets you build 40-card decks, you can actually play this on Magic Arena for any modern draft format, which is super cool. You and a friend could build primordial format decks and just battle each other. And that's it for the news. So let's move on to our card of the week, Sliver Queen. Sliver Queen is a legendary creature sliver for Wooburg. So white mana, blue mana, black mana, red mana, green mana. And it's a 7-7, and it has the activated ability, two colorless mana, Put a 1-1 colorless sliver creature token onto the battlefield. And the flavor text reads, her children are ever part of her. This card is really notable because it is the first Wooburg card that was ever publicly released. While technically the 1996 World Champion card was the first card made that cost exactly Wooburg, 
it's not collectible because I only made one copy and it went to the 1996 World Champion. It was actually embedded in a trophy given to Champagne, but it was later sold to a collector for tens of thousands of dollars. So someone out there owns that card. I, I guess I should add him to GCB at some point, but literally only one person could add it to their collection legitimately. So that's pretty cool. And Silver Queen is also notable because it was only printed in Stronghold. And then in the Commander's Arsenal product as an oversized card. And as a result, it goes for $200, whether you get the regular version or the oversized foil. It looks like a super fun Commander card to build a Sliver Commander deck around. But there are other Sliver Commanders you can play as well. So it's not like you're restricted if you have a hard time getting this card. And that was the card of the week, Sliver Queen. And now let's move on to our main topic, Ravnica City of Guilds. So let's start by setting the stage for Magic and how it was doing at the time, building up to Ravnica City of Goats. So from the game's inception, it really had explosive growth. Their biggest problem was really keeping up with demand and printing and printing issues and misprints and reprints, all the good stuff from the late 1990s. And speaking of the late 1990s, in 1998, we had our first combo winter, where Urza Saga was released and then led to a super broken metagame, an unprecedented number of bans, followed by more bans in 1999. So this kind of shook the community a little bit, and then later we had a second combo winter when, in Mirrodin Block when it came out, which actually led to a visible slump in player count. But by some estimates, Magic had a peak of around 7 million players in 2000, but it dropped down to 5 million in 2001, and it hadn't even caught back up to 1999 levels even all the way in 2004 when Mirrodin came out. Then after that, Champions of Kamigawa was released, and while it was a fun limited format, it was pretty unpopular with players for quite a few reasons. Um, First is that it had really parasitic mechanics, like splice onto arcane, soul shift, and a lot of tribal mechanics. And by parasitic mechanics, I mean that they only work within the set that they're in, and they don't combine well with other sets. So that makes for a fun limited format, but it doesn't translate well into constructed at all. And speaking of constructed, for the most part, the cards were either weak, overcosted, underpowered, and they just did not impact constructed meaningfully like a lot of other sets had in the past, with a few rare exceptions. And the theme was honestly too foreign for a lot of players. It was based on really hardcore Japanese mythology that most people weren't familiar with, and some have described it as being too much top-down design. That, that could be too much of a what well, can be a good thing. It worked really well for Innistrad to do a top-down design, but for Champions of Kamigawa, it was a little too much, and it was too weird and confusing. And what also didn't help is that this was on the heels of Meriden, which was a beloved set despite the second combo winter, so it really didn't compare well with Meriden. So Magic was pretty down in the slumps at this point. I actually briefly poked my feet into Magic around this time and then kind of stepped out. I did experience a little bit of Gems of Kamigawa. I didn't understand how to draft, but I played with some cards against friends. And I do agree, the cards felt a little weird to me at the time. They were a little too foreign. And uh, Magic at this time really needed a win, uh, like a really successful set in order to pull it out of the slump that it was in. So ultimately, a dream team was assembled for what would become Ravnica City of Guild, with Mark Rosewater leading the design and Richard Garfield joining in. You may have heard of him, he's a guy that created Magic. And a bunch of other games, he's a really prolific designer. So the set's genesis kind of began with Invasion, like looking back at Invasion and how that set went, which was a really strong multicolored set, which was very popular, but it pushed playing as many colors as you could. They knew early on that they wanted to do a multicolor set, but they wanted to push uh, two color combinations instead to kind of narrow the focus instead of just play as many colors as you can. And it ended up being a perfect storm of good ideas. It started with uh, Mark Rosewater pushing the idea of a block set design, meaning you kind of plan out the entire block's trajectory in advance instead of just doing one set at a time, like too focused on a particular set. And then there was the aha moment they had of associating each of the two color combinations with a guild. 
which not only gave them an identity, but also a name and then a unique mechanic to go with, that they knew they were onto something. And then their decision to split the guilds across three sets instead of having them all in one set, all ten guilds, was a really good idea too. They actually tried all ten guilds in the set at the same time, but it broke even professional, magic professional like players' minds when they were playtesting it because they had to sort their cards into over 20 piles or organize them for sealed play. It was just too much complexity, right? And they also created mega cycles, which led to excitement for future sets where people would anticipate guild mages and guild masters and new guild mechanics as they waited for their favorite color combination to come out in a subsequent Ravnica set. So they're on to something really, really hot there. And apparently they would continue moving forward to kind of set up expectation and excitement by establishing patterns that would be repeated in the block. And then the last good idea in this perfect storm of good ideas was hybrid mana. It was an idea Mark Rosewater had been kicking around for a while, and this was a perfect set to include it because it featured so many color combinations that it really helps smooth out the mana and give some identity to some specific cards. And the end result was one of the top five draft formats of all time. But from the collector's perspective, what was the set exactly? Like physically, what am I collecting? I'm glad you asked. Ravnica City of Guilds is composed of 306 cards, 88 rares, 88 uncommons, 110 commons, and 20 basic lands. And it was themed around four color pairs. So they had four guilds in the first set, and they were Demir, Selesnya, Golgari, and Boros. Demir is black-blue, Selesnya is white-green, Golgari is black-green, and Boros is white-red. And it was also composed of other products, and this one really surprised me when I was researching. Most sealed products for Ravnica City of Guilds, except for regular booster packs, came with a pro-player card. So I kid you not, these were like baseball cards for Magic Collectors. They were marketing cards that appeared from Ravnica until Eventide in either tournament packs, pre-constructed theme decks, and fat packs. And they had portraits of professional players with the national flag on the bottom right of the country they came from and their career statistics. It also had a little blurb about them. So, like I said, basically baseball cards for MTG players. But they were pretty unpopular, and they got discontinued after a few years. From what I understand, Magic had a marketing budget, and then they thought this was a creative way of spending it. I've seen a few of these on eBay, and they do look pretty cheesy. Like, uh, the players look kind of goofy. The graphic design is a little dated, even for the time. Um, but, you know, it is kind of a cool collector item. I don't see them listed on TCG Player at all, but they're on eBay about $25 each. Now, do remind me to support these on MTGCB at some point, because they're kind of cool. So in addition to these cards and the main cards in the set, you also could buy a fat pack, which came with the usual six booster packs, a unique life counter with a set symbol, a pack of 40 lands, a player's guide, and a Ravnica novel. This was still back in the day when a fat pack would get you a novel, which I kind of miss. That would be cool for them to bring back. Or a graphic novel or something, like a 10-page comic, anything. You could also buy four pre-constructed theme decks, and they had one for each guild. But this was before they started printing alternate art cards in these products, so... They're physically indistinguishable from other cards from a booster pack. So if you buy a pre-constructed theme deck, you can't tell the difference between the cards in the deck from a card in a booster pack, and there's nothing unique to collect there. So probably skip it it's, unless it's financially worthwhile. And lastly, they offered tournament decks, but they're not what you think they are. When you think of a tournament deck, you might think of like the, the modern standard constructed decks you can buy off the shelf now. But these are actually mega booster packs of 75 random cards. It was a way to kind of like jumpstart your collection, or you could use them for, for sealed play. They were last offered in Shards of Alar, and they were ultimately replaced by intro packs. And then you had two promo cards to go along with this. You had the pre-release promo, which was a foil alternate art Gleam Crawler. And you had a Demir Guild Mage, which did not have alternate art for, as a release promo, but it did have a unique foiling, which is how you can physically distinguish it from a regular foil Demir Guild Mage. And that's it for the products in the set. Pretty simple, not as complex as what we have now with collector boosters and theme boosters and all that stuff.
So let's talk about some impactful cards from the set and what its legacy was. Unlike Champions of Kamigawa, Ravnica City of Guilds had a lot of powerful cards that really had a lasting impact. First we had Dark Confidant, which was a really powerful card draw engine in modern legacy and vintage. If you don't know, Dark Confidant is one and a black, so two mana total, one of which must be black, for a creature human wizard at rare, and it has two power and one toughness, and it reads, at the beginning of your upkeep, reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. You lose life equal to its converted mana cost. Now, for a newbie Timmy player like me, it's like, oh man, losing life to draw cards, that sucks, but this card is still worth $30 today, because it's that powerful in, in legacy formats. And it's actually Bob Meyer's Invitational card. And if you don't know, Invitational cards are cards that are actually designed by the winner of, of the Magic Invitational tournament, and it actually would include them in the artwork. So if you look at the artwork, it's actually Bob Meyer dressed as a sorcerer, it's pretty cool. They had these tournaments from 1997 to 2007, so they don't make these kind of cards anymore. But it's kind of a cool collector's item like to collect every Invitational card, especially if you're a fan of the particular player that's depicted in the art. Next you have the Ravnica Dual Lands, which are rare lands of every two-color pair that enter the battlefield tapped unless you pay two life. That's why they're also known as Shock Lands, because they, they cast Shock on you, right, when, you, when they enter the battlefield. And despite being reprinted several times, uh, they're still worth $10 each today, which just shows how much of a central part they are of mana bases in Modern, Commander, and some older formats. They're really good dual lands, so paying two life is a very low cost to pay. You only do it once or twice probably, and then by then you don't even need them to enter untapped anymore. The next impactful card is actually both a card and a, and a mechanic. So the card is Life from the Loam. It's one and a green for a sorcery at rare, and it reads, Return up to three target land cards from your graveyard to your hand. And it also reads Dredge 3, which is explained as, If you would draw a card, instead you may put exactly three cards from the top of your library into your graveyard. If you do, return this card from your graveyard to your hand, otherwise draw a card. So it, this led to the dredge mechanic, and this, and combined with other cards from the format that featured dredge, actually created a legacy and vintage dredge deck, which is super cool, right? Like it, it, It's awesome when a set comes out and actually creates a new deck in older formats. That's exciting. It shakes up the meta. People have to respond to it. People get excited about the new cards. And even though this card was reprinted in the Izzet vs. Golgari dual deck, it's still worth $10 today. Just goes to show the lasting impact it had. Another impactful card that isn't expensive is Lightning Helix. It's red and white for an instant and uncommon, and it reads, Lightning Helix deals 3 damage to target creature or player and you gain 3 life. This is a really iconic card. Whenever I think of old cool removal spells, my mind immediately goes to the Lightning Helix because it heals and damages. It's so cool. And it's, it's just an uncommon, but it's a really powerful removal spell. It's iconic, it makes it hard to race against you, and it's featured in a ton of decks. It's really cool. Another important card from the side is Court of Calling, which is X, green, green, green. So you pay three green and then X, where X is any number you want, for an instant at rare, and it reads Convoke. Each creature you tap while playing this spell reduces its cost by one generic mana, or by one mana of that creature's color. And it lets you search a library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less and put it into play, then shuffle your library. So this is a creature tutor that's really popular in modern, especially after Birthing Pod was banned. But its value, interestingly, has started to plummet because of rumors, most likely, that Birthing Pod will be unbanned at some point. So it might be a good time to buy it to kind of hedge your bets if you're waiting to buy this card. And then an honorary mention, which, although it's a reprint, is still the most expensive card in the set, is Doubling Season, which is four and a green for an enchantment at rare. And it reads, if an effect would put one or more tokens into play under your control, it puts twice that many into play instead. And if an effect would place one or more counters on a permanent control, it places twice that many on the permanent instead. So it's a commander staple, especially for Atraxa decks, and that's why it's $60 today. And that's the last card I wanted to mention for the set. So let's talk about the set's legacy. 
Ravnica City of Guilds, succeeding after the flop that was Champions of Kamigawa, may have been responsible for the game continuing to survive long enough for its second resurgence, which was Innistrad, which for me, and for many others, combined with the duels of the Planeswalker Steam game, brought in millions of new players to Magic. In fact, in 2011, we had about 10 million players, and then by 2014, the game had exploded to 21 million. That's, that's a huge impact, and I do think the Magic probably owes its success in part to Ravnica City of Guilds, just because they knocked it out of the park after a big slump from Champions of Kamigawa. The 10 color pairs also have names now, like where we will describe decks as a Boros deck or a Simic deck that we owe this set for that identity. And this set had really fun limited play, and is considered by many pros to be one of the top five draft formats of all time. But many players, including myself, who came in like during the second resurgence, never got a chance to play it. So it's, it's amazing that it's a set that we owe a lot to, and it's in the top five draft formats, but most of us haven't played it. And, it's, and it produced, of course, the powerful constructed cards that I mentioned that still see play to this day. So why would you want to collect Ravnica City of Guilds? I think the main reason would be to, as a great draft cube target or primordial format target. This had really fun cohesive mechanics where every guild felt different, it had something unique, it was fun to draft and play. I've heard great things about it, and I personally can't wait to build my own draft cube of it. And also it's an opportunity to see the guild's origins. It had the original guild headquarters as cards, and the original guild masters, and their original mechanics, which changed when we returned to Ravnica. And in terms of final thoughts, I would say that the set was a great success, possibly too successful, because it was really Time Spiral that followed it that was supposed to be the best set ever in Magic, and Ravnica City of Guilds did so well that I think it outshone the subsequent Time Spiral, even though more effort and hopes and dreams were put into that set by the designers. And ultimately, I look forward to playing it someday. I, I hope you do too. And that's about going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining me today. If you have any suggestions for the podcast or the website, feel free to reach out to me anytime via email, brian at mtgcb.com. I'm super responsive. Facebook, or I'm MTG Collection Builder, or on Twitter, or I'm at mtg underscore cb, but I honestly never post on Twitter. But you can still reach me there if that's your preferred way. And if you want to support the website or the podcast directly, feel free to head on over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder. Check out all the pledge levels. You can get access to a postcard to send in the mail, ad removal for your account, and much more. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you guys next time. You've made it to another secret segment of the podcast. I really love these things. I think I got the idea from Husky Starcraft back in the day. He would kind of have a secret segment of some of his YouTube videos, and some of them were hilarious. And uh, I think it's kind of a cool take on the, on the sign-off from Limited Resources too. It's just nice to be able to talk about any topic you want, and, and here we go. First, I wanted to apologize for the audio quality of this podcast. Well, I think the my audio is fine. My cats were apparently running around halfway through, and uh, my wife mentioned it to me. I'm wearing headphones so I can't hear them. So there might be some meowing in the background. I'll try to edit it out, which is embarrassing, but if I can't edit it out, uh, my apologies. You've just met some of my cats. So let's move on to the actual topic of the podcast, which I'm really passionate about, and that's retirement planning. So this came up because I was giving a younger family member some advice on how to retire and how to plan for retirement because they really didn't know how it worked. Like, how do you retire? And I, I realized I really wasn't taught this either by my family or in schools, and I just had to pick it up through my awesome wife and through research. And growing up, I would often hear advice like, don't let money burn a hole in your pocket. But, but to what end? Like, does your money just sit in a low-interest savings account? Like, how do you actually retire? Like, you, you know at a high level you're supposed to work and save money, but... How does that lead to retirement, and what does it mean to be retired? So I'm here to tell you, based on what I've learned, although, warnings, this is a little ethnocentric, this is a little in the United States, 
I am not a fiduciary financial advisor. Please don't make financial decisions based on my advice. Um, you can get a fee-based, no commission fiduciary financial advisor, and they will give you much better advice than I can. But this is understood online, especially in some subreddits like the Financial Independence subreddit, to be kind of the way to go to retire. So at a high level, to retire, you need to generate a passive income that you can live off of, right? So it means you don't have to work anymore. Instead, you have a passive income stream that gives you enough money to live off of comfortably. And I'll explain the way that I would do that right now. So imagine that you're airdropped or I'm airdropped into the Midwestern United States with nothing. I have no education. I have maybe enough money for like a month's rent. Like what, what would you do to go from there to retire? Step one is get a job, upgrade a job. So that, that sounds simple. And I'm pretty biased toward computer science jobs and software engineering and web development, but the best job to get is the one you can get right now. And you can always upgrade jobs while you're working. I know it can be challenging with energy levels and time, but that's really the best way to go because when you're already employed is the best time to look for a new work because you're in a better negotiating position. You're, you're willing to walk away so you can negotiate higher base salaries and, and stuff like that. So that's step one. Without a job, without an income stream, you're kind of dead in the water. And while you work, you can also seek out an education, whether it's night classes or watching YouTube videos on programming. Some of the best programs I've worked with didn't go to college. They just went to a boot camp, and they, they were great colleagues to work with. That's, that's definitely an option. Just uh, watch out for the bad boot camps. There are some bad ones out there. So now you have a job, and you're upgrading your job and kind of moving up in your career, right? Uh, the next step is to decrease your expenses. That's step two. And uh, many young people I've met, they, they spend way too much on car loans or housing. So... Some people, they'll, they'll buy a fancy car, right? And the dealership, if you qualify the loan, they'll sell you a car that's way too expensive for your income. You'll see young people paying 300 a month, 400 a month, like payments on their cars when they really should be driving like a, a Honda Civic with 200,000 miles on it that they bought for $3,000. Um, that's more economical and they can run that into the ground while they save up. Likewise, if you, have an, if you live in an apartment by yourself, like paying $1,200 a month or something, that's that's a lot of money you're throwing away. Like you could get a roommate situation or live in a room for rent for 500, 600, depending on which part of the country you're in, of course. But I've seen a lot of young people in Southern California just kind of throw away their opportunity to save for retirement just by spending too much on their car or housing. Uh, so make a budget, track every dollar. Mint.com is a pretty good app. I've heard great things about you need a budget as well. You just pick an app or do a spreadsheet yourself and just track where all of your money is going. Vices like smoking or drinking or drinking coffee multiple times a day from Starbucks, it can really add up and you need to increase your income and decrease your expenses in order to be able to follow the next steps. Step three would be to get a $1,000 emergency fund. Like everyone needs one of these at minimum. Needing new tires for your car shouldn't be a life or death emergency. And I've literally seen this happen with family members. And it's like, dude, like just save some money, buy a rice cooker, you know, just get your $1,000 emergency fund so you can afford random car repair expenses, right? Now, I know it's easier said than done. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Some people are in difficult financial situations, but you should consider it an emergency if you don't have at least a small $1,000 emergency fund. So that would be step three. Four is probably the most important step, and that's to pay off all of your non-mortgage debt, so your high-interest debt, because ultimately to retire, you need a passive income, and debt is the opposite. It's a passive expense. You're, you're paying money every month. So you really should use your credit cards like cash, paying them off uh, twice a month optimally, and just reap the rewards that credit cards give you and the protections they offer without paying interest if, if you can at all. Like um, You should only use credit cards and pay interest if it's an absolute life or death emergency, and most of the time you should just treat them like cash, only spend money that you have. 
And as a side note, if you're like me and you had no idea, I was using a debit card for a very long time before I got a credit card. And if you if you have discipline, you should get a credit card now because it's how you build credit, which can eventually help you buy a home. And a lot of them have great rewards programs. Like some of the simple ones just give you 2% cash back on everything. That's pretty cool. And they have these other protections you take for granted where with credit cards, you can dispute a transaction. Like say you pay someone to do a service and they do a poor job, you can dispute it, get your money back. Whereas with the debit card, the money's just gone. Even if someone steals your debit card and steals money out of your checking account, you sometimes can't get all of it back with the debit card. You're much more protected with a credit card, which is alone a good reason to have a credit card. That's step four, pay off all non-mortgage debt. Easier said than done, I know. And step five would be to increase your emergency fund to three months of expenses. At this point, imagine that you're not in debt anymore other than student loans or a mortgage and you have your $1,000 emergency fund, this is where you want to bump it up to at least three months. That way, if you lose your job or you're changing jobs or you're just sick of work and you need a break, you have a cushion, right? It's not life or death if you lose employment. So it's really your insurance against either losing your job or switching careers. So that's that's step five, increasing your emergency fund to three months of expenses. And step six is really at the heart of retirement, and that's investing, right? So in order to generate a passive income that you can live off of, you need to invest And if you don't know anything about investing, here's a a really quick overview. You can buy stocks, which are a partial ownership of a company, which will either increase or decrease in value, and you can sell that to others. You can buy bonds, which are a loan that you give to the government, and they pay interest over time and eventually repay it when the bond matures. And you can also buy and sell these things as if they're stocks. They will go up and down in value. They're more stable than stocks, but they grow less. You get less percent of your money back. And then there's real estate where you can go into rental properties, right? Maybe buy a duplex and rent out half of it. It's hard work, and it really depends on where you live, whether or not that's viable, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind. And these three methods together are kind of how you generate a passive income to retire. But I I would not advise ever buying stocks or bonds directly. Instead, I would buy what's called a mutual fund. And they're a special investment type that include thousands of stocks, like 3,000, instead of you picking them. And they have the big ones like Facebook, Johnson & Johnson, Apple, Microsoft, and so on. You can buy these on websites like Vanguard or Charles Schwab. It's usually, you need like $3,000, $5,000 to get started. And the most popular mutual fund is that I've heard of, at least on Reddit, is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, also known as VTSAX. And it's the most popular mutual fund I've seen on Vanguard, and it's earned about 12% a year over the last 10 years. So again, when you buy into this, it's like you're buying shares of thousands of stocks so you're not gambling on one or two companies you're kind of riding the economy as it does well or poorly and in the last 10 years it's it's earned 12 percent a year it's done really well so in terms of when you're actually ready to invest in a mutual fund you you actually have to pick like what kind of account you're going to buy these mutual funds in and a super simplified high level overview is that if your company has a 401k program you should invest in that up to the matching amount some companies for example will give you match up to 4% of your employee income, whatever you invest. So you put in $100, they put in $100. It's, it's literally free money. Like There's an expression, there's no such thing as free lunch, but a 401k is a free lunch. It's the only free lunch that exists. And the reason you want to invest in a 401k, aside from all the free money, is that your money goes in from your paycheck without being taxed. It only gets taxed when you remove it. So ideally, when you're ready to retire, you're at a lower tax bracket than when you put the money in. And that's a good place to be. Alternatively, if your company doesn't have a 401k or if you max it out, you can invest in a Roth IRA instead, which is a special account you can open where you can put in right now, I think it's $6,000 a year. Um, that's the limit. And you it's the opposite where you pay the taxes up front. So that way, all of the gains that your investments make over time are not taxed. So 
It's hard to say which approach is better, whether to get taxed up front or later. It kind of depends on your life situation. But I think doing both is like the correct thing. I would invest in a 401k up to matching, then invest in a Roth IRA and max that out, and then go back to the 401k and max that one out as well. And then once you max all those out, if you still have more excess money to invest every month, I would just get a normal brokerage account that's fully taxed and do it that way. Some advanced stuff you can do with HSA accounts, but right now, if you're investing anything at all, you'll already be way ahead of the game, which is awesome. And as your wealth grows and you're saving money, you can eventually start saving for a down payment on a home. And depending on where you live, you can either buy a duplex and rent out the second unit to make some money, or you can just get a traditional single-family home. And then after 10 years, when it appreciates in value, you can upgrade homes and have that be a rental property, which is great because um, it's good to spread out your investments across mutual funds and properties because properties protect you against inflation, where if we have a high rate of inflation, the home value just goes up with it. In fact, your mortgage becomes easier to pay because it's that, that amount doesn't change, but your home value does. So it's kind of cool to kind of hedge your pets in that way. And the rental income can be a part of your retirement plan as well. So I'm telling you to invest, right? Hopefully at least 20% of your income into a mutual fund. But how does that actually lead to retirement? How does that physically work? What are the mechanics behind it? Well, there's a big study called the Trinity Study. Uh, that looked over a bunch of market data and did Monte Carlo simulations, I believe, which is basically looking at every possible combination of things you can invest in at the time and seeing how it would have performed. And statistically, no matter how you invest, as long as it's reasonable, you can safely withdraw 4% of your investment balance a year, and the money will last you for your lifetime. In fact, in many cases, in most cases, it'll continue to go up. So it's essentially your money working for you and paying you a paycheck. And that's the big secret to retirement. So to make this more concrete... Let's say you saved up to a million dollars in investments. So you're 65 years old, you have a million in a mutual fund. You can safely withdraw 4% of that a year. So that would be $40,000 to live off of. And while a million dollars may seem like a lot, if you plug in the numbers into a tool like the net worthify calculator, you see save just 20% of your income making minimum wage starting at age 18 and never get a raise, you'll have $500,000 at the age of 55 thanks to the power of compound interest. If you have a life partner, a wife, or a husband doing this along with you, you'll have a million dollars together from the age 18 to 55, just making minimum wage. If you look at calculators that account for raises over time and inflation, that number gets much higher, like 1.8 million. So it's actually totally doable to save a million dollars in your lifetime, just thanks to earning interest. Because with things like these tax, you'll you'll be earning up to 12% a year. You're supposed to assume like 5 or 7%. But you'll be earning quite a bit of money, and the money you earn is going to get reinvested, and that leads to the compounding interest, and the curve becomes close to exponential over time. So even though you might be contributing a linear amount of money, it's going up uh, way faster than linearly over time. So how much should you save to retire? I see a lot of people on the financial independence subreddit shoot for $2 million, which would give you an $80,000 a year income to live off of. Again, that's 4%. So you withdraw 80000 a year. I would break that up into paychecks uh, twice a month to make it feel like I'm getting a paycheck and to space it out over time. But I think that's a fair number. But if you live in a cheap part of the world or if you want to move to a cheap part of the country, maybe move out to a farm or a cabin or something like that, a million dollars. There's a, a subreddit called Lean Fire, and some, some folks will retire off half a million and make it work just living out of a van or whatever brings them joy, which is, I think, super cool. And that's kind of one of my life goals is to try to retire as early as I can, uh, which, you know, is easier said than done. But it's um, if you track all of your expenses, if you pay off your debt, if you continue to move up in your career however you can, 
or even if you're just making minimum wage, if you can manage to live in a cheap situation and save at least 20% of your money, you can have a million dollars by the age of 55 if your partner does the same. But all this money talk aside, don't, don't neglect your health. I, I think cardio is huge for your mental health and for the motivation to move up in your career, right? And therapy is important if you need, if you need mental health help from a professional and your health in general is important too. So be sure to take advantage of the fewer yearly physicals that you should have under basically any insurance plan on earth. And I guess that's not correct. Uh, any insurance plan in the United States if you're insured. And um, even if you feel like you're starting late in your financial journey, like I could have started earlier, uh, you'll still be far, far ahead of most people because this stuff just isn't taught in schools and unfortunately isn't transmitted to us by our parents, at least for the most part. Those are for the topic. Um, if you're interested in learning more, definitely go to the Financial Independence subreddit and check out the sidebar. They kind of have like a guide on how to get started um, with planning for retirement and investing. And there's a bunch of little sub-communities like Lean Fire or Fat Fire for all the super rich guys that retire off way more money than I'll ever learn in my lifetime. But it's kind of cool to read their stories too because we all come from different backgrounds and some are more privileged than others. And yeah, I wouldn't mind a yacht. That would be kind of sweet. Or a Black Lotus or two.